take our Bibles and open it to 1 Timothy 5. And today we'll look at uh, part 2 um, of caring for widows. And if you've missed, uh, perhaps I've missed the, the first sermon, um, you, you will find that on our website. Um, but today we are continuing from verse 9 in 1 Timothy 5. Let's read together the, the word of the Lord. 1 Timothy 5 from verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. The reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess that without you we can do nothing. And Lord, so we ask you for your mercy, your grace. Lord, give us your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts. Help us, Lord, to understand this difficult passage, that it might be clear to us, but that we also would live it out in our practical lives. Lord, please help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we have seen God's heart and care for the most vulnerable in society, the widows. Indeed, real Christianity, true Christianity, is expressed in the practical caring of your family and especially your widows. If your Christianity does not work at home, it doesn't work. That's where it needs to work. And we have seen how serious it is if anyone would refuse to do this. Look at verse 8. Just look up at verse 8 again. It says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So you see, you can make shipwreck of your faith by inviting false teachers on board and believing a false gospel. That's one way. Another way is to deny your faith with the true gospel. By saying, no, I believe the true gospel, but by not living it out by loving your own mother and father or family members is to deny the faith as well. Your faith would then be useless. You would prove, as James would say, that you have faith, but your faith is dead. The faith of demons, right? Who also believe in God, but it hasn't changed their lives in any way. But we have also seen that we need wisdom when we care for widows. The church is not to take care of all widows, but only of the widows who do not have family members. The widows who are left all alone, the true widows. Or like one preacher said, a widow in need is a widow indeed. Okay, That's the widows we have to be looking out for. And we'll see that exact principle in the second half of this passage as well. So now this is a bit of a tricky, tricky passage because 
we have to ask and answer the question, what does it mean when to put the widows on the list, the widows that had to be enrolled? What did that mean in the context of Ephesus 2,000 years ago before we rush to our context and just apply it to us? So we have to do this work first for us to know how it, what it means. All right, so we see that Paul has made a bit of a shift in verse 9 because now he gives more qualifications for widows who have to be on the list. Look at verse 9 again. It says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. And it goes on. So first, let's just answer this question. What, is the, what does this mean to be enrolled or to be put on the list? The word enrolled means to select someone to be a member of a group. Now, it was used in a secular, a secular context of choosing and enrolling soldiers for, for service, to be in the army. So the idea of being enrolled was not just to receive something, but to give something, to be in service. And therefore, I think that when Paul says these widows who have to be on the list, they were special widows, not just the widows that the church has to take care of, but also the widows who qualify for special ministry in the church. And what would often accompany this to be on the list is a pledge, is to, to make a kind of a commitment to remain unmarried, to remain single, to choose to say, I'm going to give myself wholly to Christ and to the church for the rest of my days. I think that's the background, and we're going to see why that background is important as we move along, especially when it comes to the younger widows and what was going on there. So keep that in the back of your mind as we move along. So we'll look at two points. We'll look at the qualifications to be on the list, and then secondly, reasons why younger widows should not be on the list. Okay, simple outline basically just coming from the text. But first, let's consider what are the qualifications to be on the list? And there are three that Paul highlights. It's maturity, fidelity, and charity. Those were the three that you, you, we will see in the text. So first qualification for, an, for a widow to be on the list is maturity. Maturity. And we see that in verse 9. She must let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. If in antiquity, to be 60 was considered an old man. So if you were 60, then you are old. So anybody below 60, you can feel the compliment just falling on you. Now, you are still a young person, young man, young woman. Okay? But the idea also is this, that if you were about 60 years old, there, were, there was little chance that you would be remarrying after that age. And also, there are little chance that you are able to care for yourself. You are becoming weak, frail, and therefore the church can care for you. But also, then they can also partake in special ministries to maybe the sick, the poor, other widows, etc. Now, this is why I think that background of the list is important. Because we don't, if we would just read this verse and say, we as a church only support widows that are 60 years old and older. So imagine a young widow who has lost her husband at the age of 40. And she has no family. She has nobody to care for. And, we, we, and she comes to the church for help and we say, just wait for 20 years and then we can talk again. Or like Solomon said, imagine um, 59 and 11 months, like come next month, then we'll, we'll see what we can do. You see, so we shouldn't think like that. We should really, the church should think about widows and, and really anybody in need. If you, if you have nobody to care for you, the church should be your family. That's the idea. But here... 
it is a smaller group of widows within the larger group of widows that not only qualify for the church's support, but also for ministry. And Paul says 60 years is the, is the minimum. Second qualification is fidelity. Look at verse 9, the rest of it. It says, having been the wife of one husband. This is the exact same expression that Paul used earlier for elders and deacons, but in reverse. Remember, for the elders and deacons, you had to be a one-woman man. But now we see this woman had to be a one-man woman. She had to have eyes only for one man. This just means she had to be devoted to her marriage, faithful in her marriage. It does not mean she may not be remarried after her husband has passed away maybe at a, at a younger age. Because Paul will explicitly later in these verses say to younger widows to get married. So Paul and God is not against if your husband or your wife has passed away to remarry. That's not somehow weak or somehow sinful in any stretch, any, any way of taking it. But when Paul says the, the wife of one husband, it means this woman has a track record of faithfulness to her husband. Last qualification is charity. She had to be a woman full of good works, full of charity and good deeds. Look at verse 10 when it says, having the reputation for good works. It, it goes, and then it lists them. It says, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. This list is not exhaustive, but it is an impressive list. She has shown by her life that she is deeply committed to Christ and deeply committed to serving others. She had a practical Christianity. You don't get the impression from this list that she was a big talker, right? A woman who just loved to talk a lot, but do very little. It was the other way. She was a great doer of many good and rich good deeds. So women in the church, let these, this list encourage you. If you want to know how does her life look like full of good works, for me specifically as a woman, here is a list. Here is something you can strive for. <clears throat> she has done first the good works of bringing up children. She wasn't distant. She, she was involved in the, in the raising of her children. She brought her children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. She sacrificed herself, her time, her money, her energy to raise her children well. She's also shown hospitality, which literally means a lover of strangers. That's what hospitality meant. In those days, um, many Christians were traveling a lot. There were a lot of traveling preachers, and the roads and the taverns were dangerous places to be. So it was very important for the church to practice hospitality. And so this woman also was full of hospitality. She opened her house to strangers to care for other people that she doesn't know. Chrysostom wrote this. He says, this is the kind of Hospitality that has to do with zeal and alacrity, with readiness, and going about it as if one were receiving Christ himself. So this is how we all should practice hospitality. When we have other Christians over at our house, we should see them as, as if Jesus himself is visiting us. How would we take care of their needs? How would we welcome them into our family? This is the kind of life this woman has shown. Verse 10 continues, she has also washed the feet 
of the saints. The first thing a good host would do for you if you would enter the house was to have your shoes removed and to let your feet be washed. Now, that was normally done by slaves. Slaves were those who had to wash the feet. But here, what do we see? She herself does this. She washes the feet of the saints. It shows us of her humility, her willingness to do even the most menial of tasks because she loves her brothers and sisters in Christ. And beloved, you don't need to know your Bible very well to know that Jesus, our Lord, has done this very thing for his disciples. Christ took the form of a slave in humility and showed his love, his practical love for his disciples by washing their filthy, dirty feet. He gave this conclusion in John 13. Listen to John 13 verse 14 when it says, <clears throat> If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Christ stooped to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. The creator of all things did that. The one for whom all things were made. All things exist through him and for him. And he became a man and washed feet. But he did not just come to wash our, the dust from our feet away. He also came to wash away our sins from our souls. To cleanse us. He went even lower than a slave. The slave that would wash feet, but he went lower by hanging on a tree. As one accursed, one forsaken, one who was cast away from the presence of men and of God himself. And he did that, why? Because he loves us. Because he, he wanted us to be with him eternally. So Christ not only loved us in his life, but especially in his death. So beloved, can we just pause here before we go on of this list and just stand in awe of what Christ has done for us in his humility. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is good news proclaimed to you. Better than that South African has won the World Cup last night. Better news than that is that all your sins can be forgiven completely if you but put your trust in him. If you but trust and look to him by faith, all your sins will be washed away and you can have eternal life. Life without end, life never ending can be yours as a gift of grace. And the irony is that if Christ saves you, he changes you to do the very thing that he has done for you. He gives spiritual life to you so that you too will serve others in the same way he served us, by washing feet. You too will become like him. You would love to <clears throat> lower yourself to, to serve your brothers and sisters. This life of serving is really the opposite of verse 6. Just look again at verse 6. What Paul reminds us here, he says, She who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. You see, a life lived for yourself, a life 
trying to hoard as much money as you possibly can get or give yourself to as much pleasures as you can possibly dream of is empty, it's dead, it's meaningless. To live for yourself is a kind of death. She who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. But oh, if you have been born again by the Holy Spirit, if you have new taste buds to not just serve because you have to, but serve because you love God, you love the saints, because of the overflow of your joy that all your sins are washed away and therefore you can give yourself in this manner. So test yourself this afternoon. Do you love the saints? Do you love other Christians as brothers and sisters? Do you delight to serve them? Is your basic inclination to give and to serve and not to be served? If not, if this is not true of your heart, you are still dead. Your life is vain. Your life is meaningless. May God open your eyes and draw you to Christ that you might have life and true life. And for those of you who know him, let me encourage you. This is what your Lord was willing to do for you. You should see him washing the feet of the disciples, washing your feet. That's what he did for his own people. That's how much he loves you. That's how, he, that's how committed he is to you. So do you feel this kind of love from the Savior for yourself? Do you believe that this is how he feels about you? That's why I can, you, can, you can feel like Peter, right? When, when Jesus wanted to wash his feet, like, Lord, what are you doing? By no means are you going to do this for me. You are the master. You are God in the flesh. And still he did it. He's called a friend of sinners, a helper for the weak. So Christian, dare to believe that he loves you like this. Not just to wash your feet, but to hang on the tree for you. And now imitate him and become like him as well. So a woman who knows her Lord and her Savior will have the reputation of doing these kind of things for others. But the list continues in verse 10. She has also cared for the afflicted. The afflicted. These can be people that are persecuted for their faith, people that are suffering, poor, needy. She was a shelter, a healer. She was an encouragement, a rock for people, for, for their tired souls. And at the end of the list, he almost repeats what he said at the beginning. Did you notice that? He says at the end, and has devoted herself to every good work. He just said in verse 10 at the beginning, she has a reputation for good works and she's devoted herself to every good work. The difference is in the first one, it's plural. It says she has a reputation for good works. And at the end, she has devoted herself to every good work, singular. Do you notice that? So both in general and in the specifics, she is a woman given to good works. These kind of widows not only qualify for the church to support them, but they also qualify to serve in a special way the church and other people in the church and to be recognized, to be put on the list, to be honored in that sense. But now, secondly, a second um, point of this text is, is an important caution for us. It says, 
The second point is it's reasons why younger widows should not be put on a list like this. Verses 11 to 12. Refuse to enroll younger widows. Oh, sorry, where am I? Yes, verse 11. Refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Notice an observation with me. Paul says, if a younger widow simply desires to marry, she's already breaking her commitment to Christ. Okay? But we know that Paul is not against remarriage. We know this because very shortly he's going to counsel younger widows to get married. So we have to ask, what's going on here? And I think, again, with the background of being on the list, not just include, didn't just include the church supporting them, but also they, them committing to serve the church and probably making a pledge or some kind of a promise not to remarry, which would have been incredibly foolish for younger widows to do. The, maybe the thought process of a younger widow might have been something like this. Maybe she has lost her husband and she says, my married life is over. I'm done. I want to just give myself to Christ. I just want to give myself to the church. I'm not going to think about marriage ever again. And she might have also seen the older widows, the older widows who are on the list, see how they humbly serve in the church and see, wow, that might be a good idea for me to do. But what will inevitably happen is this. If younger widows are fully supported and she no longer has to work or she she can only um, be part of the church in that sense, but she still has her natural desires intact. One day, she's sitting in church, wholly devoted to Christ. And next moment, she sees another man worshiping Christ, hands lifted up. And suddenly, she's no longer wholly devoted to Christ, but she's wholly devoted to finding out what that man's name is that's worshiping. She finds out his name is Levi, and she's, she's done. And then she catches a glimpse that he has a MacArthur study Bible under his hand. You see, is there anything wrong with that? <laughs> no, beloved, that's, that's good. That's natural. But it would be wrong if you have vowed not to remarry again. That would be then um, bad to do. You will then bring condemnation on yourself if you have made a rash vow and then break that vow for a second vow of marriage. Now, you might have noticed the ESV takes uh, another view. If you've listened carefully, the ESV says, verse 12, is not just breaking your pledge. In the ESV, it says you are losing your faith. You have abandoned, you have apostatized. Because look at how the ESV says it. And so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. If you have any other, most other translations do not translate it like that. Many translations say they have um, broken their pledge. In this view, it, condemnation then is not eternal condemnation, but rather being guilty for your sins. Just like um, the same way in 1 Corinthians 11, if, if the church would have partaken of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, they would have eaten and drunk judgment on themselves. That wasn't eternal judgment. That wasn't going to hell. That was just inviting God's discipline on your life, which resulted in illness or in, in some cases even death. So in this view, the word faith is to be taken as pledge, not faith. The NASB reads the New American Standard Version says, thus incurring condemnation because they set aside their previous pledge. NIV 
because they have broken their first pledge. So I think that word first also supports this view. If the first vow included not to marry, you would break that vow for the second vow of being married. So what happened is that it would just be foolish to take a vow you cannot keep because that would be to sin and to draw your your desires away from Christ. It would be to compromise your conscience and in order to fulfill your natural desires, which is good in, in and of themselves, but wrong if you have promised like this. That's why don't, don't put younger widows on the list in this way. Now, by way of application for us, we too can compromise our relationship with Christ just to get married. That maybe you are struggling with your singleness for so long, and you are willing to compromise your own relationship with Jesus in order to get married. The most serious ones of those is to be willing to marry an unbeliever, which the Bible explicitly forbids us to do in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39. Another is to marry anyone who comes your way, anyone that just, just looks right and just shows the slightest interest and you are in, without really examining that person's devotion to Christ their love for the church, or their their desire to study the Bible and to obey it for themselves. So instead, they just marry, ignoring all the red flags because of their strong desires. So be careful. We, We too can fall into the same trap as these younger widows, maybe compromising our relationship with Christ to get married. But as in all things, one sin usually leads to another. And so foolishly vowing not to marry led to other sins for these younger widows, as verse 13 shows. Look at verse 13. Here, it's like the snowball effect of now the younger widows are on the list, and now verse 13 happens. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Notice what it says. It says, they learn to be idlers. And I think Paul intentionally echoes chapter 2, verse 11. Just, just glance over to chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. A, a Christian woman is to be learning. She is to study her Bible, to be a sheologian, right? She must know Christ. She must know good theology. And she must be practicing that theology in her life. That's what all disciples ought to do. Remember, that's just what the word disciple means, to be a learner. But instead of learning Christ, instead of learning the Bible, she is learning what? How to do nothing. She's learning how to be idle. It's because they are fully supported by the church. She no longer has to be productive in other ways, and therefore she is. her passions are stronger than her time permits. She has more time and more passions to be fruitful. Paul's point is this. They have abandoned their serious pursuit of knowing, learning, and obeying Christ and instead now are are living for idleness. On a side note, beloved, the teaching here the apostle gives us shows us the utter foolishness of the Roman Catholic Church for requiring celibacy for young priests and young nuns. To think that that is a wise thing to do for young men, young women who have strong natural desires to make a pledge or a vow of celibacy in order to be holy or to serve 
Christ or the church. And how many sins and scandals would have been prevented if they rather listened to the inspired apostle instead of to their traditions and to their pope? So we should just take that as well and be thankful for God that we have the word of God to guide us in this. No, we say marriage is good. We honor God when we embrace his good gifts. And that is exactly what Paul says to the younger widows to do. Look at verse 14 when he says, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Notice what Paul is saying very clearly. It's not somehow less holy if you decide to remarry after your husband has passed away than to just fully commit to serving the, the church or somehow like, something like that. No, to marry, to raise children, to manage your household is a productive Christian life. That is to be wholly devoted to Christ in another way. To live the ordinary Christian life of bearing children, being devoted to your family is a good life. What God wants us to live. Notice also the contrast. Paul implies that if you do those things, if you marry, bear children, manage your household, you won't have time to be idle. That's a full-time job. It's a full-time responsibility. It cures idleness. You will have your hands full, as any mother can tell you, to raise children. You won't have time to be a busybody, to spread gossip, going from house to house. This is the opposite of being a self-indulgent woman. To have a family and to manage that family requires you to die to yourself. Your own pleasures, your own ambitions, your own dreams, and to give yourself for the well-being of another, a family unit. The Proverbs 31 women, we see that, right? She, yes, she does many things outside of the house, right? She's a financial beast, right? She buys a field. She has a business. But whatever she does, what does she do? Why does she do those things? For her family, for the well-being, for the benefit of her husband and for the benefit of her children. That's why she does those things. She wasn't just furthering her career as an ending of itself, as the world would counsel us to do. Whatever she was doing, she was doing for her family. Beloved, we live in an anti-family, anti-marriage, anti-children world. And we need to know this. We need to recognize this. Marriage is put off longer and longer because you need to first learn to just enjoy your life. Just have your life before you settle down with someone and need to serve them in some way. Children, oh, let, me not, let us not get started with them, right? They are a necessary evil at best. Something to endure instead of to celebrate. But being a woman who gives herself for her family that is somehow viewed by the world as a wasted life. A wasted life. A life where you have left your gifts and your abilities off for a man or for weak children, right? But as a church, as Christians, we reject that view of family because of verses like these. This is what Paul says is a fruitful life, is a productive Christian life. The high calling, the privilege of being a faithful wife 
The privilege of raising children is a beautiful thing from God. And we should embrace that with all of our hearts. Let me say as well a word to those who might be here and might still be single. Okay, I'm not married. I don't have children. Then what does that productive life look for me? But I think the idea here is we all can be part of the Great Commission. All of us, women especially, can be part of raising children, not your own. Discipling younger women to be fruitful at your work, to protect the unborn, to strive for them by doing good work wherever the Lord has placed you. To seek there, to glorify God. So if the church makes this foolish practice normal in the church, and if they reject marriage, which we have seen is the doctrine of demons in chapter 4, if they start to view this ordinary family life as somehow a wasted life, then we are in danger of falling away completely from the faith. And this is already starting to happen with these younger widows. Look at verse 15. What Paul says, he says, For some have already strayed after Satan. This is the consequences of unhealthy doctrine, unhealthy teaching, wrong thinking. This reminds us also that the family, your marriage, your relationship with your children is spiritual warfare. That's spiritual warfare right there. The marriage relationship is the one the devil would love to destroy. And if he cannot have the marriage, he at least wants your children. And we should know that. We are in this war for the souls of our family, for the souls of our children. Our marriage are the reflection of Christ and the church. So how do we stand against the schemes of the devil? Well, by wearing the full armor of God in our families, in our marriages and our parenting. Let's be equipped with the belt of truth. Let's know what God says about marriage, about parenting, about how we should fight. What God expects of us as both husbands and wives and parents. Let us know these things. Let us wear the breastplate of righteousness. Let's live a holy life full of the fruit of the Spirit. Let our love be genuine. Be, let us be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let us wear the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. Let's be ready and quick to repent of our sins, to ask for forgiveness, to protect the unity of our marriages. Let the gospel be the motivation that drives us. Let us pick up the shield of faith. When the doubts and unbelief and other attacks from the devil fall on us, let us pick up and trust that God's word is best and it cannot fail us. Let us also wear the helmet of the hope of salvation. Remember that Jesus is coming again. Before him, you will give an account for your parenting and your marriage and everything you've done. Our lives are very short. We have limited time with those precious souls that God has given us. Let us use that. Look up. Look to heaven. No eternity is long. Don't waste the time you have with your family members. But that's what it means to have the helmet of the hope of salvation. Remembering Jesus is coming again. I think especially when we look at the war, the war with Israel and Hamas, that should be another reminder that the world is longing. The world is it's in its birth pains, waiting for the second coming of Christ. And it's close. Let's be ready. 
And let us pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and stand firm against the evil, the lies of the devil. Let's depend on the Holy Spirit for our families. We cannot do these things. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by Him. So ask God, your Father, Father, fill me with your Spirit that I might stop being so irritable with my family members. Fill me with power, self-control. May I be a beautiful image of what you are. Have you considered that, beloved, that we are in the image of God? That means that we represent God. If your children, if your family looks at the way you treat them, do they have a picture of what God is like? The way you talk to your friends or treat them, treat strangers. We have this weight upon our shoulders to represent Him faithfully. And we can only do that when we are redeemed by Christ. Remember, He is the image of the invisible God. And as we then become more like Christ, we are restored back to the image we were meant to reflect That's how we stand firm against the devil and his plans for us. And lastly, Paul closes with verse 16 when he says this. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. That's almost repeating the principle, right? Family members should take care of widows so that the church can take care of the true widows. But there is a small change. In the first half of the section, it was any family member. It wasn't necessarily women. But here it says any believing woman who has widows, let let her take care of her. So I think Paul is connecting this with verse 14. What happens if the younger widows, instead of being idle, chooses to marry to become independent again of the church's funds and the church's need, then they then in turn become available again to support other widows. That's the idea here. So that's what we should be striving for always, to be independent in such a way that we are able to give, that we are able to support those in need. And it also teaches us once again, the church is to be the last resort, not the first resort of those in need. We should first ask if there are family members available to care for those in need. I close with this story. Uh, there's a true story of a very influential church in America. It was built by a man who lost his father at a very, very young age. His mother was in, in, in her early 30s. Now, this young widow had absolutely no means of taking care of herself. So when her husband died, she was a true widow. A widow in need is a widow indeed. And what this boy, when he was a little boy, he watched how the men of the church came and literally built them a house to live in. Literally. <laughs> okay. While he watched this, standing in awe of how the church is caring for them as a family, he made this promise in his heart. He says, Oh God, you build me a house. One day when I am old, I will build you a house. And that's exactly what he did. As an older man, he built that church's building. And in that building, many, many people have heard the gospel, have been called to follow Christ because of genuine, practical Christianity on the ground. May we be obedient to Christ to care for widows and indeed for all those who are really in need. No matter how much it costs us, 
Let us honor God. Let us commend his love and his grace and help those who do not believe to come to Christ that they might have life eternal. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are a good, good father for us. Lord, you know our frame. You know that we are but dust. Lord, you are the eternal God, the the God of grace and all comfort. Lord, thank you that you mean for us to be your image bearers, to show forth the same love that you have given us for those in need and for our brothers and sisters and for, for everyone, Lord, those who are lost. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to first receive the great love you have for us in Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to wash our feet, to care for our afflictions, to bear our sins upon the cross, that we might have eternal life. Help us now, Lord, to also give ourselves like that to one another and to the lost. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for our time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.